quo scaleste ruitis. And now perhaps you guess why the hot, intrepid blood inherited from the roving sires of his Somersetshire mother remained cool amidst all this frenzied fanatical heat of rebellion. Why the turbulent spirit which had forced him once from the sedate academical bonds his father would have imposed upon him should now remain quiet in the very midst of turbulence. You realize how he regarded these men who were rallying to the banners of liberty, the banners woven by the virgins of Taunton, the girls from the seminaries of Miss Blake and Mrs. Musgrove, who, as the ballad runs, had ripped open their silk petticoats to make colors for King Monmouth's army. That Latin line, contemptuously flung after them as they clattered down the cobbled street, reveals his mind. To him they were fools rushing in wicked frenzy upon their ruin. You see, he knew too much about this fellow Monmouth and the pretty brown slut who had borne him to be deceived by the legend of legitimacy on the strength of which this standard of rebellion had been raised. He had read of the absurd proclamation posted at the cross at Bridgewater, as it had been posted also at Taunton and elsewhere, setting forth that, Upon the decease of our sovereign lord Charles II, the right of succession to the crown of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, with the dominions and territories thereunto belonging, did legally descend and devolve upon the most illustrious and high-born Prince James, Duke of Monmouth, son and heir apparent to the said King Charles II. It had moved him to laughter, as had the further announcement that, James, Duke of York, did first cause the said late king to be poisoned, and immediately thereupon did usurp and invade the crown. He knew not which was the greater lie, for Mr. Blood had spent a third of his life in the Netherlands, where this same James Scott, who now proclaimed himself James the Second by the grace of God, King, etc., first saw the light some six and thirty years ago, and was acquainted with the story current there of the fellow's real paternity. Far from being legitimate, by virtue of a pretended secret marriage between Charles Stuart and Lucy Walter, it was possible that this Monmouth, who now proclaimed himself King of England, was not even the illegitimate child of the late sovereign. What but ruin and disaster could be the end of this grotesque pretension? How could it be hoped that England would ever swallow such a perkin? And it was on his behalf to uphold his fantastic claim that these West Country clods, led by a few armigerous Whigs, had been seduced into rebellion. Quo, quo, scelesti ruitis! He laughed and sighed in one. But the laugh dominated the sigh, for Mr. Blood was unsympathetic, as are most self-sufficient men. And he was very self-sufficient. Adversity had taught him so to be. A more tender-hearted man, possessing his vision and his knowledge, might have found cause for tears in the contemplation of these ardent, simple, non-conformist sheep going forth to the shambles, escorted to the rallying ground on Castle Field by wives and daughters, sweethearts and mothers, sustained by the delusion that they were to take the field in defence of right, of liberty, and of religion. For he knew, as all Bridgewater knew and had known now for some hours, that it was Monmouth's intention to deliver battle that same night. The Duke was to lead a surprise attack upon the Royalist army under Feversham that was now encamped on Sedgemoor. Mr. Blood assumed that Lord Feversham would be equally well informed, and if in this assumption he was wrong, at least he was justified of it. He was not to suppose the Royalist commander so indifferently skilled in the trade he followed. Mr. Blood knocked the ashes from his pipe and drew back to close his window.
As he did so, his glance traveling straight across the street met at last the glance of those hostile eyes that watched him. There were two pairs, and they belonged to the Mrs. Pitt, two amiable, sentimental maiden ladies who yielded to none in Bridgewater in their worship of the handsome Monmouth. Mr. Blood smiled and inclined his head, for he was on friendly terms with these ladies, one of whom indeed had been for a little while his patient. But there was no response to his greeting. Instead the eyes gave him back a stare of cool disdain. The smile on his thin lips grew a little broader, a little less pleasant. He understood the reason of that hostility which had been daily growing in this past week since Monmouth had come to turn the brains of women of all ages. The Mrs. Pitt, he apprehended, contemned him that he, a young and vigorous man of a military training which might now be valuable to the cause, should stand aloof, that he should placidly smoke his pipe and tend his geraniums on this evening of all evenings, when men of spirit were rallying to the Protestant champion, offering their blood to place him on the throne where he belonged. If Mr. Blood had condescended to debate the matter with these ladies, he might have urged that having had his fill of wandering and adventuring, he was now embarked upon the career for which he had been originally intended, and for which his studies had equipped him, that he was a man of medicine, and not of war, a healer, not a slayer. But they would have answered him, he knew, that in such a cause it behooved every man who deemed himself a man to take up arms. They would have pointed out that their own nephew, Jeremiah, who was by trade a sailor, the master of a ship, which by an ill chance for that young man had come to anchor at this season in Bridgewater Bay, had quitted the helm to snatch up a musket in defence of right. But Mr. Blood was not of those who argue. As I have said, he was a self-sufficient man. He closed the window, drew the curtains, and turned to the pleasant candle-lighted room and the table on which Mrs. Barlow, his housekeeper, was in the very act of spreading supper. To her, however, he spoke aloud his thought. It's out of favour I am with the vinegary virgins over the way. He had a pleasant, vibrant voice, whose metallic ring was softened and muted by the Irish accent, which in all his wanderings he had never lost. It was a voice that could woo seductively and caressingly, or command in such a way as to compel obedience. Indeed the man's whole nature was in that voice of his. For the rest of him he was tall and spare, swarthy of tint as a gypsy, with eyes that were startlingly blue in that dark face and under those level black brows. In their glance those eyes, flanking a high-bridged, intrepid nose, were of singular penetration and of a steady haughtiness that went well with his firm lips. Though dressed in black, as became his calling, yet it was with an elegance derived from the love of clothes that is peculiar to the adventurer he had been, rather than to the staid medicus he now was. His coat was a fine camlet, and it was laced with silver. There were ruffles of mechlin at his wrists, and a mechlin cravat encased his throat. His great black periwig was as sedulously curled as any at Whitehall. Seeing him thus, and perceiving his real nature, which was plain upon him, you might have been tempted to speculate how long such a man would be content to lie by in this little backwater of the world into which chance had swept him some six months ago, how long he would continue to pursue the trade for which he had qualified himself before he had begun to live. Difficult of belief, though it may be, when you know his history, previous and subsequent, yet it is possible that but for the trick that fate was about to play him, he might have continued this peaceful existence, settling down completely to the life of a doctor in this Somersetshire haven. 
It is possible, but not probable. He was the son of an Irish medicus, by a Somersetshire lady in whose veins ran the rover blood of the Frobishers, which may account for a certain wildness that had early manifested itself in his disposition. This wildness had profoundly alarmed his father, who for an Irishman was of a singularly peace-loving nature. He had early resolved that the boy should follow his own honourable profession, and Peter Blood, being quick to learn and oddly greedy of knowledge, had satisfied his parent by receiving at the age of twenty the degree of Baccalaureus Medicinae at Trinity College, Dublin. His father survived that satisfaction by three months only. His mother had then been dead some years already. Thus Peter Blood came into an inheritance of some few hundred pounds, with which he had set out to see the world, and give for a season a free rein to that restless spirit by which he was imbued. A set of curious chances led him to take service with the Dutch, then at war with France, and a predilection for the sea made him elect that this service should be upon that element. He had the advantage of a commission under the famous De Ruyter, and fought in the Mediterranean engagement in which that great Dutch admiral lost his life. After the Peace of Nijmegen, his movements are obscure, but we know that he spent two years in a Spanish prison, though we do not know how he contrived to get there. It may be due to this that upon his release he took his sword to France, and saw service with the French in their warring upon the Spanish Netherlands. Having reached at last the age of thirty-two, his appetite for adventure surfeited, his health having grown indifferent as the result of a neglected wound, he was suddenly overwhelmed by homesickness. He took ship from Nantes with intent to cross to Ireland, but the vessel being driven by stress of weather into Bridgewater Bay and blood's health.